I'm going to give one or two talks that some of you may find questionable. And I want to introduce this peculiarity of these talks by telling you something which I told a certain number of you already. I got several months ago a letter from a monastery in Russia with an inquiry. It said, we are warned against the theology of our Western Orthodox theologians. Three stand out in particular as a danger to our souls. Of two, we know the names and know who they are. They are Father Alexander Schmemann and Father John Weindorf. The third one, we don't know who he is. Could you enlighten us? His name is Anthony Bloom. Well, I could not give very convincing evidence to these people. But what I have got to say may possibly provoke that kind of reaction because I want to question a certain number of things or at least to show that there are several approaches to things. In my last talk, which you do probably not remember, I tried to show how the experience of saints expressed in the prayers which they left for us question us that every prayer which we read must force us to ask ourselves can I say these words truthfully that is from within my own experience truly and sincerely or can I say some of the words with belief either with knowledge already acquired or in an act of trust other passages we may also treat in the same way by saying, if the saint thought that way and expressed that way his experience of God, it must be true. And although I do not know it from my own experience, I can say these words, trusting him and trying to find within my own spiritual experience, within my own thoughts, 
something approaching the depth and greatness of what he says. But we must be honest, and we will then find that certain of the saints' words we cannot pronounce with total faith and conviction. Moreover, that at times we should say, no, I cannot believe it. It's beyond me. But more than that, there is in me such sinful experience or such immaturity that forces me to say, I cannot believe these words. I cannot say these things because it would be lying before God. I insisted on these things in my last talk and I'm not coming back to it, but I want to underline the fact that we all, all without exception, when we use the prayers of the saints, should use them truthfully. Say with complete conviction the things that are true in our experience, tentatively those things which we believe are possible, and then tell God that these words I cannot possibly say sincerely. This applies not only to prayers, of course. It applies to passages of the Gospel, of the Old and the New Testament, in which things are said which are certainly true because they have become and remained unshaken the face of the whole church, but which still remain a problem to us. And again, in the same line, there are words and expressions which in our colloquial language are familiar to us, but which may not mean exactly in the context of the scriptures or in the experience of the saints what we meet by them. One of such words which we use lavishly and which we must ponder on <coughs> very, very seriously <coughs> is the word loving. What is, when we say that God is love, what do we mean? The simple answer is to say, God loves each of us so tenderly, so openly, that whatever we do, if we come back to him and say, I'm sorry, forgive, he will take us into his arms and bless us. 
And to a certain extent, this is true, except that our return to God must be something much more serious than a momentary reversal of our previous behavior or feelings. At times also, it is so easy to deceive ourselves, if not one another, by using the word in a very strange manner. I remember a conversation I had a number of years ago with a priest, why not name him, with Vladeka Vitali, who became the head of the church in exile. We were speaking of God and of love in particular, and he was speaking very sharply of anyone who did not share his views and opinions. And I said to him, aren't we called by God in the gospel not only to love one another generally, but to love our enemies. And he brightened up and said, indeed, and I love my enemies, but I hate the enemies of God. So we see that even the notion of love can be adulterated in a strange and terrible way. There is another approach to this notion of love. One can say that love is the readiness, and indeed, not only a theoretical readiness, but a readiness embodied in action in the whole of our life to serve our neighbor. And when I say my, our neighbor, I do not mean universally everyone, without paying sufficient attention to the individual neighbor, but readiness to respect him, to serve him, to devote our lives to him, and indeed, if necessary, to offer our deaths for him. To love everyone, anyone, without distinction, in a way, is simple. It's a concrete person who is a problem. And those of you who have read, read Solzhenitsyn may remember a passage in one of his books in which, speaking of one of the heroes, the characters, he says, he loved the whole of humanity, and this is why he hated every individual that uglified 
that made ugly this perfect image which he had. We do not express ourselves so sharply, and we don't always feel so sharply. But don't we, to a greater or lesser extent, share this attitude? So that even a word like loving, our love of God, our love of our neighbor, requires from us a very deep, earnest, and severe examination of our own soul and of our own behavior. When we say that God is love, we don't mean to say that he is all sentimentality, all tenderness, We know nothing about love when it is God himself. We know, however, that if we ask ourselves, how has God ever shown us that he loves, we can say, he has called into existence a whole world which has set before him serious and dangerous problems. And the most dangerous of the problem is the creation of man. If God had created man as a mechanic, that functions well, once started, there would be no love in that. It would be inventiveness, genius perhaps. But in the case of men, there is one feature in men, indeed in all his creations, that is tragic. It is a fact that man was given by him freedom, the right to be himself as he chooses, with consequences that rebound on everyone else, determining the response and the choice of everyone, but also rebound tragically on God himself. The right which man had to determine himself, his destiny, his relationship to God, his relationship to self and to the neighbor, has resulted in the incarnation of the Son of God. And the incarnation of the Son of God, and I have quoted this phrase more than once, means that God has accepted to pay the cost 
of the human, betrayal of self, betrayal of his vocation, betrayal of his creator. And the result of it is the incarnation of the Son of God who became one of us to save us. Love understood like this is something very different from sentimental tenderness for friendship. It means the readiness to take upon himself all the consequences of his creative act, indeed, but also of what every single creature of his will make of his own life. It is a tragic Anything which we forget very often and which decades ago Father Lev Gillet, a French Orthodox priest, pointed out in an article, God is tragic. The life of the Holy Trinity is glorious, yes, but it shines in and through tragedy. This is something which we forget, which indeed we do not speak about. A tragic God. Because it seems to us very often that we, if we use such phrase, about God, we belittle him. We make him, as it were, vulnerable instead of being the great, omnipotent, glorious God. And we forget that he is infinitely more glorious in his sacrifice of self then he would be in the immutality, immutability of a serene life observing the tragedies of a created world. We have got a tragic God because this God is a God of love. You may say, is it possible that man has introduced tragedy into the Godhead? Is it possible that God can be acted upon, wounded by a decision of man? No, not quite. Because what makes it even more tragic, more serious, is that there is tragedy in the very being 
or the Holy Trinity. At the beginning of the Vsyanushne, the vigils, either on Saturday or before a feast, the priest stands before the holy table and pronounces the words, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And at that moment, when he pronounces these words with the censer in his hand, he makes a sign of the cross, writing in the cross into the very proclamation of the Holy Trinity. We may ask ourselves, how is that possible? We are not the first ones to ask the question. St. Gregory, centuries ago, asked the question, and he had his own answer for it. He was asking it indirectly. Why is it that God is not one arithmetic unit but a trinity? And he says, if God is love, to be one that is a unit is impossible because he then could love no one but himself. If God was made of two persons, they would love one another and there will be no space for anything else. They would be like a couple who hold one another embraced, look into one another's eyes, rejoice in one another, and exclude everything else that will break the intimacy of this unique meeting. He goes on to say that God is Trinity. Because the presence of the third one breaks down this false unity. But in a very particular way, he explains that in order that each could love each other at every moment. One of them must accept to step out and to remain, if I may use this phrase, in the cold. So, so that 
two could love one another without interruption, without anyone intruding, contemplate each other and rejoice in each other. And the third one is ready to step out and to be alone. But if God is love, this becomes true for each person and for the three at the same time. The two who are inseparably at one turn in their, in their turn towards the one who made the sacrifice of his very existence for them to be alone. And two are again at one, while the third one is ready to step out. It's a tragic God, a God in whom love and death are identical, as it were, in whom mutual love means mutual, total, ultimate sacrifice. And so in this context, if we have a God whom we call the Holy Trinity and whom we see as an image of perfect love, we must realize how tragic this God is within himself and how glorious this tragedy is how glorious the sacrifice and the reintegration are. I think it is important for us not to see God as a glorious being seated on a throne far above us, so far, that we can perhaps lift up our eyes towards him, lift our hands towards him, cry Godwards, without ever knowing the mystery of love of God. And we know it within ourselves because to the small extent to which we are capable of loving one another, we begin to become an icon of the Holy Trinity. Think of the mother a father and a child. Think of the way in which each parent at times not only proves ready but actually sacrifices himself in whatever way it means for the child. 
that is an image. It cannot be pursued totally. But even within the limits of our experience, we know that if there is love between us, it holds two together in an embrace that makes the two one. And at the same time, these two let go of their embrace in order to love and serve the third one. And this is a mystery of the Trinity reflected in mankind, reflected poorly because we are very far from this sacrificial, crucified and resurrecting love. But we know something about it. We know something at times, not only in terms of father, mother, family, but of the readiness to sacrifice what is more than me. I have quoted, I think, to you the example of this officer who during the war sent on a perilous mission his own son, who was a, a junior officer in his unit. The chances to come back alive were practically null. And another officer speak, speaking to the father said to him, how could you send your son unto death? And the father replied, I could send my son. I could not possibly have sent <clears throat> anyone else's son. This is a reflection <coughs> of the sacrificial love which is the Trinity and it is at the same time the glory of God as it is a glory of humans when they prove capable of acting a similar uh, manner. God and mankind in a strange, incomprehensible way are akin to one another. Mankind is in the making. Mankind, mankind is not ready. Yes, that is true. But basically, substantially, Mankind and not only in the church but in its totality is an icon of God one in the Trinity. 
supremely in saints to a lesser degree in the concreteness of the church, not in what the church is in essence, because the church is the place where God and mankind dwell together, are united, are one. But in the whole becoming of mankind and of each of us, this is an important thing for us to realize. When we look at the history of mankind, we see light and darkness because we are not perfect. We have not yet become a pure and perfect image of the God one in the Trinity. But there is something of it in each person to the extent and in the way in which each person relates to each other person and to the whole body. Now, when we read the Old and the New Testament, we hear God speaking to us in a language which we can understand. This is a terribly important thing to realize that what the gospel say to us is true, but is an expression of the truth which we are capable of understanding. I would just make a remark. The gospel, as the Old Testament, is full of parables. For us, a parable is a simile, an image. But the word is so much richer. Those of you who have notion of mathematics know that a parable is a geometric figure, very peculiar, which could enlighten us in the understanding of what spoken parables are. I will try to explain what in geometry a parable is. If you take a circle, it has a center. If this if you press the sides of the circle, it becomes an ellipse. 
and the center that was one is divided into two because each of the half circles that form the ellipse need a, a center. If you continue to press on the sides and the circle breaks, the arms extend right and left. At one end, the center remains at the core of the image. But the second center is projected into infinity. And what strikes me in the parables of the sages, of the gospel, of the Old Testament, is that we are given an image which we read at the center of the limited semicircle in which we live. And as we grow spiritually, as we grow in experience and intellectually, we can go farther and farther, as it were, in pursuit of the second center that has moved into infinity. And this is why every parable of the gospel or of the Old Testament, or indeed the parables given to us by the sages throughout the, year, the centuries, are clear and simple as a story on the level in which they are taught. But when we grow into them, when we spiritually expand, when we become more and more partakers of the wisdom that created this image, we go beyond and beyond the image itself. Well, the image remains true, but the truth of it becomes so extraordinarily wonderful. I would like to conclude this talk by something that will be a bridge with the next one. If in addition to what I have said about the parables, you remember a remarkable phrase of Father Sergei Bulgakov, who said that the beginnings of the book of Genesis is not history, it is meta-history. That is, it tells us in the language of a fallen world, which is ours, the mysteries of the world before its fall. And therefore, what it says is true. 
but it has got another dimension than the factual truth of what we are told. And to this, I would like to come in my next talk because we are accustomed to read the beginning of Genesis and the first four or five chapters as though it was simple history, a series of facts. While there is a great deal more to them than this, and that there were a number of interpretations of these passages which do not all coincide with one another. Habitually, in the Catechism and in books for children and grown-ups, we have one image that prevails. Are there other images that we should examine without denying the first one, but taking into account that there are other ways? I will come back to that in my next talk.